I've always been very interested at different ways of looking at the world. I've never been such a fundamentalist scientist that I thought the physical could explain everything. And I've always really enjoyed um, exploring different creative ways of expressing emotions about nature. That's really how I came to story. I originally started doing quite a bit of my own writing. And very quickly, I seemed to keep coming across storytelling, the storytelling tradition, which is oral storytelling. It's all about um, passing on stories that you hear. It is the original way of learning story before anything was ever written down. One of my favourite folk tales that I use quite a lot is the one of two farmers standing in a field. And one of them turns to the other one and he says, here, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts. And, you know, load of old rubbish. And the other farmer turns around to him and says, really? And then he just disappears. Welcome to Resurgence Voices. I'm Marianne Brown. For this episode, I'm talking to Lisa Schneido, ecologist, storyteller and author of Botanical Folktales, a new book which seeks to reconnect people with the joy, wonder and terror of nature. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Ethical living. Ecology. Eco-activism. Resurgence. really started out as a question in me that was raging for some time. When I, when I started with storytelling, I was particularly interested in how storytelling could help to reconnect people and nature, that holy grail that we are all seeking of a closer connection with nature and trying to make that much more of a fundamental part of our everyday lives. I think there's there's a lot of people searching for that in different ways. Um, I was fascinated to know whether there was any old wisdom in the traditional tales, those tales that have survived. They've got to have survived for a reason. They've got to be good. They've got to be worth listening to. There's often little nuggets of information and um, wisdom in stories. That was part of it, but There was also a burning question in me whenever I went to a nature reserve and um, quite a lot of organisations will hire storytellers um, if they have a nature reserve event. So the Wildlife Trust or the RSPB or the National Trust use quite a lot of storytellers and I would sit and listen to them. I'd sit and watch them. There'd be some really good storytellers. Um, They would often have um, real littlies with them, toddlers, Mm. and they would be telling very animated stories And the children would be gripped. But the stories were very often of wildlife of other countries. There would be Anansi stories from Africa or Coyote stories from North America. And they're really good stories. But I never really heard British folktales. I never really heard folktales about the nature that everybody happened to be standing in when they were in the nature reserve. And I'd be looking around and thinking, well, what about this? Are there stories of this? And it's a little bit perhaps like um, revisiting English folk and the English folk song revival. Mm. Um, My question really was, is this stuff all too obvious? 
or is this stuff all old hat or is this stuff actually there or not mm. and that's what led me to start researching folk tales of Britain and Ireland and particularly ones that contain nature one of the stories that that ended up in the book is a story from Lincolnshire called Yallery Brown and it's a horrible little story a really dark little story mm-hmm. um I think it was Alan Garner who said that he thought it was one of the most important folk tales of Britain. And it's about a farmhand called Tom, they're usually called Tom, um, who meets this little spirit. He's a little dandelion spirit who's under a stone and he lets him out from under the stone and the spirit says, I'll give you something in return. And this farmhand called Tom, he says, well, I don't really know what I want. Can't be having with money, can't be having with women. Tell you what, you could do my work for me. And this Tom ends up being such a lazy idiot that the the little dandelion spirit just gets his own back and he just makes Tom's life a misery for the rest of his life. End of story. <laughs> Nothing good happens. Yeah. There is no redemption. And it there's something strange about folk tales. They just work on you. Mm. They They work on your emotions. There's things in there that you can't really reconcile or necessarily reach any conclusions from but they they affect you nevertheless um i mean in that story for example did you see uh, was there a clear reason why it was a dandelion that we <laughs> the thing about the stories in the book is that i've actually worked them and told them and mm. when you work a story to tell it um it works on you back mm. it might sound a bit hippie but it's it's <laughs> very very true and so the more I, Yallery Brown, for example, really got into me. Um, a little Yallery Brown dandelion cloud hanging over my head for quite a long time <laughs> while I was working on that story. But um, yes, to me, it, it very much is. It's, it's full of dandelion down and it's this funny little creature who is a complete prima donna. Um, but he's also a bit of a weed. He gets everywhere. Mm-hmm. He keeps coming back. You know yeah. the way when you keep pulling up dandelions and they always come back yeah. unless you get right to the taproot? Um, poor old Tom never makes it to the taproot <laughs> <laughs> in the book the the stories um, are some of them are really different to each other and there's uh, there's certain kinds which, which seem to be moral stories there are ones which um, there are coming of age stories mm. and um, and also there's even a ghost story was your criteria just that it contained a, a sort of botanical theme and just trying to get to the bottom of um how you brought them all together because mm. they do seem quite disparate some of them they are quite disparate mm. i mean it the stories in the book are the result of about two years worth mm. of searching stories to work and tell obviously i chose stories that i liked yeah. that were great to tell that um were, were just good stories um in my opinion and that that opinion will vary from person to person but also i chose stories that try to reflect different aspects of people's lives and the way that people interact with plants. That that relationship can be very complex. Um, so there is a story in there from Orkney about flax, which used to be a very important part of a lot of people's lives and going through the way that flax was processed um, in order to be able to, to use it for fabric. Um, and yet there are other stories in there of different trees and um, the different folk characteristics of trees, the different characters of trees and the way that those worked. Um, There's quite a lot of harvest stories. So there is a story about a a pixie cult called Lazy Lawrence, who is a a real Dorset folk character. If you go along to any Morris event in Dorset, Lazy Lawrence will be there. And he is a a pixie cult that goes along and um, 
nips at uh, people who try and steal apples from orchards and uh, if you get in his gaze then then that's it you've had it yeah. i also wanted them to be quite thought-provoking the book goes through the um growing year so it starts very much at the winter solstice when everything is asleep and most things are died back not all and it goes right the way through um the solar year the growing year and um the different plants within that that seemed to make most sense for a plant book and to follow it in that way. So I hope that is useful for people to take the stories and actually tell them. Can you tell me a bit more about how you gathered the stories? Um, I mean, it took two years, you said. Yeah, pretty much. Um, So stories happen in a lot of different ways. Um, Some of the stories I heard other, other people tell those stories, and then I would go back and research them and look at different versions and work out how that worked. Um... Other stories I found in um, the work of folklorists, there were quite a lot of folklorists, particularly in the 19th, early 20th century, who would go and collect stories that were being told in much the same way as Bering Gould went across Dartmoor and found folk song. There are are folk story collectors. So, um, for example, uh, a woman called Ruth Tung, who used to work in Somerset, she used to work out of Halsey Manor in Somerset, Um, She was a prolific folklorist and she um, used a lot of nature, noticed a lot of nature in the stories that she collected. Mm. And then others from, you know, I've tried to find multiple sources for as many of them as I can. Um, Because as a storyteller, you work up your own versions. They are traditional tales, but they are... um, the kind of take that you have found on them at the space you find yourself in and in the experience you have of sharing those stories with others. Um, So, yeah, I hope that there are things in there that people find and enjoy. Uh, I mean, you you say in your introduction that you want people to retell them, Um, but um, to keep them alive, um, would you rather people memorise them and told their own versions or read it straight from the book? I mean, people have different ways of working with story. Um, you know, a literary author has a very different way of working with story to to an oral storyteller. Mm. But to me, uh, a story is alive when it is told. And that's not about reading it, learning it verbatim, and then repeating it back para fashion, because mm. those are my words. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's about trusting yourself enough to know that you can remember the story. Yeah. Um, and telling that in your own way. And you find when you start to learn storytelling in that way that the story does very much become alive. It kind of takes you with it um, in a funny kind of way. But, I mean, I would just encourage people to to get out and try storytelling because it it is the most wonderful thing. Um, It is a craft, really. It's, It's one of the oldest crafts. And it's got such a resurgence at the moment. There's storytelling Mm -hmm. festivals everywhere. Mm -hmm. There are storytellers working in all different walks of life. Um, I do quite a lot of schools work. And in in the world we have today where seven-year-olds are taught very, very detailed grammatical um, analysis of language, Mm -hmm. um, introducing story to children and encouraging them to become storytellers it gives a huge amount of confidence and imagination um, 
where that is not necessarily supplied by life these days. Mm. So I would really encourage people to, if there's a particular story in the book that you like, um, take it, let it work on you, and have a go at telling it. And the botanical aspect of these stories, uh, uh, I mean, we hear a lot from like Robert McFarlane and Jackie Morris, their book The Lost Words and things like that, just emphasising the fact that these words are missing from mm. young people's vocabularies. Uh, I mean, do you have any comment on that? I think that work is very, very important, and I am worried very much that the plants that even I knew as common when I was younger are no longer known about by an awful lot of people. And the plants that my mother, um, we still have her pressed flower book from the 1950s in Bedfordshire and it contains corn cockle and it contains broom rape and it contains plants you won't find in Bedfordshire these days. And every generation has a loss and the tragedy is that those generations to follow don't even know. So I think that trying to encourage exposure to nature in all its forms, in all its local forms, um, nature of place, nature of local place, is absolutely crucial. It is still there. There is still nature on nature reserves. There is still nature in the boundaries and the hedges and the verges, in those places that are allowed to be that little bit more wild. Um, It's really important just to get out there and... I think the beauty of some of these folktales is that they cut through our kind of received knowledge these days is that science is good, but if you don't know, that's a bad thing. It's like knowledge is the currency. Do you know the names of those things? Do you even notice them? The folktale is a bit different to that. The folktale is asking questions about the involvement between us and those plants and what's going on with them. And I hope that the folktales help a little bit with that more emotional connection mm-hmm. that the science doesn't really allow us to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, in your introduction, you mentioned growing up uh, next to a wildflower meadow, mm-hmm. is that right? And there was a hedgerows and a willow tree. Yes, that's and right. And as a child, you loved playing there. But then the, for over, during the course of a day, the farmer raised it all and then grew carrots. If you were going to retell that as a folk story, what would happen to the farmer? Ah, that's a very interesting question. (laughs) It was within a week. The farmer, um, I won't name him, but we we knew him, obviously, and he was following the farming policies of that time, where you you got paid to take hedges out, you got paid to intensify the land. That, That was very much the way things were done then. And... It's very interesting. That field is still there, or those six fields are still there. Mm. Um, about three years ago, I was looking out over the fields from, from uh, the top room of, the, of Mum and Dad's little house with my dad, and uh, we looked out over it, and the grazing on the fields at the back had stopped. Um, the management of it had changed, and we were looking out there over May time, and we could see yellow across the fields. And it was cowslips. Mm. And uh, they had come back. It's difficult to know what will happen to that field now because I understand it is owned by a land bank for development. 
Um, I understand it's one of those fields that has been bought up and is being sat on just in case that particular corridor of that particular transport route in in North Buckinghamshire is developed. One dreads to think, really. But there was a, a big hit of inspiration and, and heart from the fact that if you manage that land differently, if you leave it for long enough, then those plants will come back. Mm. Things can regenerate. Um, things can renew and regrow. Um, it takes a long time, mm. but it can happen. So I'm not sure whether I would, <laughs> to go back to your question, I'm not sure whether I would um, bring down wrath or judgment on that mm. farmer if that was a folktale. He was doing what farmers did at that time. Mm. Farmers needn't do that. Mm. Um, that ultimately, of course, is up to us. It's up to us in the food that we buy, in the subsidy that we pay to farmers, in the way that whole system is changing. Um, things are absolutely crucial at the moment. And it is crucial that we not only set our ambitions for sustainable land management very high, but it's crucial that we try to get the detail right too and that we support farmers in doing that. You mentioned also in the introduction that some of the stories are quite scary and you know, it's up to the person reading them whether they share them with younger children or not. Yes. But um, uh, I personally do read them to my very young daughter because I feel like... Um, it's she enjoys stories so much and I don't want to shelter her from the what life can be like you know and stories are a safe place for her to explore those um can you tell me what your position is on on that (laughs) yes it it can be quite difficult when you're a storyteller because Mm. you can have your own views on um dark stories and, and younger people but you also need to respect the views and the wishes of the parents of the children listening. So you will often find a storyteller maybe introducing a little bit of dark here and there, but also making sure that they they do try to respect that. My own personal view is that I think um, children benefit from some dark stuff. I'm a big Roald Dahl fan and all of those different things, which are not... They're not gory, are they? But they can be a little sinister in places and they can reflect the dark of life as well as the light. Mm. I personally find that's very important. Mm. But of course, every child is different. Um, My seven-year-old niece, Holly, really told me off about the book because she said, Auntie Lisa, it says on the back, suitable for all ages. Mm. Well, yes, but... (laughs) Mm. So, you know, there, there are some children who will be much more deeply affected by particular stories than, than others. Um, so I think it is up to the parent. But I do think, as you say, um, stories are a safe way of working out some of those darker issues. Mm. Um, unfortunately, life isn't always happy ever after. Mm. Unfortunately, there are malevolent things out there as good ones. If we don't explore those when we're younger, are we ever going to be prepared for them when we're older? Yeah. Uh, and Bruno Bettelheim wrote about the fairy stories, didn't he? I think it was in the 60s that he wrote about those and the kind of psychoanalysis mm. of fairy stories and how a lot of them were about um, basically challenging your parents, as, as I suppose it would do, <laughs> wouldn't it? But um, And how uh, fairy stories um, were ways where children could challenge the authority of the person reading them, reading them a story and um, and also see that there's a way that they can disobey their 
parents uh, and be successful and all that kind of thing. Do you think that there's an important, with that in mind, that the the kind of botanical aspect of things has an important role to play? I would like to think it does um, because I I love botany and I'm really into plants. Mm -hmm. I think the reality is that stories are about people. They are about the human condition. And the human condition involves interaction with all kinds of different things, doesn't it? Including plants is a crucial element of it and including all kinds of other things. So I think um, I think you're right. I think that um, you know there there are lots of different themes that are touched on, lots of different buttons that are pushed in in fairy tales. Um, they hold some very deep currents for us emotionally. Um, for example, there is a Cinderella story in every single culture in the world. Mm-hmm. Some of them are incredibly harsh. Some of them are child abuse stories. Some of them are Disney, right. you know, and everything in between. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's up to us, really, how much we want to dwell on those, how much we might want to take something at face value, or how much we might want to investigate the different things going on underneath. And mm-hmm. there's riches there. There's mm-hmm. certainly riches there. Um, but that going, coming back to that safe space for, for stories uh, as a way of exploring... Um, maybe here um, there is also something about plants. We we have these these really kind of set featured things in our culture. For example, going to the woods is a scary thing to do. Mm. Um, going to the woods is the unknown. It is the place where you lose control. Um, and yet we have something in our culture now. You know, remember when they tried to sell the forests off? Mm. And everybody was up in arms about selling off the forests. The forests are the fundamental of the land. There are some very, very deep undercurrents in our culture, which I think I would like to personally explore those through story a lot more. Because they cut through this notion of nature all being lovely and somewhere over there, not involved in our lives, all really nice stuff to do when when you have a tiny bit of time and nothing to do with everything else that we're involved in. That's, of course, rubbish. Everything is interconnected. So if those stories allow us to unwrap some of those relationships, great, I'm all for it. I couldn't finish our conversation without asking Lisa to tell a story from her book. This one is called Cricker, and be warned, it's not for the faint-hearted. So there is a story from Derbyshire, And it comes from the time when people used to have to walk between villages. Most people didn't have any other kind of transport than to walk. And if you needed to get somewhere day or night, you would walk. And so this man had to travel to the next village, um, a place called Cromford, which has uh, a river flowing by it quite close by. And he had to walk over the fields and he had to walk late in the afternoon and into the night because his mother was very sick and he had to go and see her. There was no delay. He just had to do it. And so he put on his travelling clothes and he pulled his cloak tight to him and he set off. And probably about two miles before he got to Cromford, There was a funny dark shape in the hedge in front of him, and as he got closer, he could see it was an old woman. He'd never seen her before. She was dressed all in green, and she looked at him with very, very bright eyes, and she said, what are you doing travelling round these parts so late? And he said, well, I've I've got to get to Cromford. I've got to get to Cromford. 
And she said, ah, it's like that. So, take these. Give them to Crooker and he might let you through. And the man said, well, who's Crooker? But the old lady had disappeared. And the flowers that he had taken were a bunch of St John's wort. Now, this was in February. You don't get St John's wort out in flower in February, but there they were. And he thought, that's very strange. Who is Crooker? But he carried on walking. And a little way further up the road, there was another huddled shape in the hedge, and he got closer, and it was an old woman. She was all dressed in green, and she said, where are you going tonight? I really wouldn't walk out here if I were you. And he said, I I have to get to Cromford. And so she held out her hands and said, take this. Crooker might accept them. And he took it and said, thank you, but who is Crooker? Who is this Crooker? She disappeared, and he looked at the flowers, and it was a bunch of primroses. Way too early for primroses. Well, he held the two bunches of flowers, and he hurried on, and it was starting to really get dark now. And even though it was a clear night, he was starting to feel not very happy about this. He wasn't really looking forward to where he was going. And the old woman appeared again. Really, I wouldn't go any further if I were you. Night is coming on very quickly now. And he said, I have to go. I have to go. And she said, take these. You might just get past Crooker alive. Well, that didn't sound very promising, did it? He took the flowers and he turned to say thank you, but she had already gone. And it was a bunch of daisies. Daisies with their petals all folded up for the night. And so he took the flowers and he thought, well... Whether this is superstition or not, I've got to carry on. And as he walked down, down towards the river, the sky suddenly all clouded in and the wind started to whip up. And as he started to walk down on the path down towards the river, he noticed that the wind in the trees was getting quite violent. It was swirling around and it was groaning and the wind was getting very, very strong. And as he hurried down the path, He noticed that in between all the clouds hurrying across the sky, there was very, very bright moonlight now. The moon had risen and the moon was casting shadows of the trees. All the way along the river, there were ash trees, big old creaking ash trees. And the shadow from the moon made it look as if the branches of the ash trees were reaching out across the road like fingers towards him. And he thought, this is stupid, I'm imagining things. And he hurried on and he hurried on. And now the river started to get rougher. And the water started to rush and started to gurgle. And as the storm whipped up around him, he could swear that the fingers of those branches, the shadows of of those branches were stretching out and stretching out in front of him as if they were just about to grab him. And he looked behind him. And it seemed as if one of those ash trees was following him. It seemed as if one of those ash trees was actually right behind him, about to grab hold of him, and he suddenly realised who Crooker was. And he took one of those bunches of flowers and he threw it behind him. And the river started to roar. The river said, Give! And the tree backed off. And he hurried on, and he hurried on, and he hurried on, and the storm whipped up, and again... The shadow of the branches of those trees started to extend down the road in front of him in the moonlight as if it was going to grab hold of him and snatch him up and take him inside the very tree itself. 
and he took another bunch of flowers and he threw them behind him and the river again was roaring. Give! And the tree backed off. And a third time, the man was running now. He was trying to outrun the shadows of those trees. But the trees nearly had hold of him. It was as if he was in a whole web of branches and shadows and wind and gale and roaring, gurgling river. And he threw, with the last effort, he threw that last bunch of flowers behind him. And the river shouted, Give! And the man ran for his life. And he ran and he ran up over the bridge that went into Cromford, right the way over the bridge and into that little chapel just on the other side of the Cromford Bridge where he sank down to his knees and he collapsed. And all the people in Cromford heard the storm raging and they could hear the river roaring and they looked at one another and they said, oh, there'll be another body out there tomorrow. The priest is going to have some more work. Nobody should ever go out in this kind of storm. But in the morning, they found the huddled figure of the man in the chapel, still alive, absolutely terrified. And they took him in, and they looked after him, and they fed him a hearty breakfast. Because it was a fine morning. It was a fine early spring morning. The sun was up. The sky was still and calm. There was no wind. And the river was just a little twinkling gurgling, babbling brook, which babbled down past a whole line of very innocent-looking ash trees outside the village. If you're in the UK and you want to find out more information about storytelling, have a look at the Society for Storytelling's website, where you can find details of local clubs and events. Botanical Folktales of Britain and Ireland is published by History Press. We feature a review in the latest issue of Resurgence and Ecologist magazine, so check out that as well. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>